you're listening to the podcast of Interhentes, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. On today's episode, senior editor Irfan Tahiri is in conversation with Dr. Maria Bhatti, lecturer at Western Sydney University. Today's topic, Sharia law and international commercial arbitration. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Irfan Tahiri, and I'm a senior editor with Intergentes, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. This is our first podcast for the 2020-2021 academic year. And I'm delighted to have our first guest here, who is Dr. Maria Bhatti. Uh, she is a lecturer in Islam, Human Rights, and International Law at Western Sydney University. So from all the way here in Montreal, I want to welcome you all the way from Sydney. Thanks for being here, uh, Dr. Bhatti. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be um, talking to you in this podcast. Uh, the Canadian-Australian interaction is happening. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. And so uh, you have. Uh, we're going to be talking about your new book, which was recently published in 2018. It's about Sharia law and international commercial arbitration. And I guess uh, before we even start uh, asking, uh, tell us about the book and what was your goal in writing it? Yeah, so it's, a, as you can imagine, this is a very specialized area. And I became really interested in writing in this topic because when I was doing my master's in laws at the University of Melbourne, I was studying international commercial arbitration and I just became really interested in seeing whether there was any Sharia interaction with it. Mm. And amazingly enough, there was. There was actually something within Islamic law um, that had a lot to say about international commercial arbitration that was relevant, that was practical. And you also had a lot of sort of classical interpretations and contemporary inter interpretations, um, which made me really, really interested, especially because I do find that Sharia is an area which is currently in contemporary times under-researched. Unlike classical times where we had some amazing scholars such as Al-Ghazali, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, etc. So that was some of that was my passion in writing about this topic. I wanted to research more um, and really see what Islam had to say about international commercial arbitration. Yeah, fantastic. I would agree with you that Sharia law is very under-researched and not well known, and it's uh, it's a delight to hear it in a context of uh, some commercial uh, sort of reality today. So that's interesting. Um, um, why don't we start off with a very easy question? A lot of our readers have heard about Sharia law, but they don't know what it is. And I know entire books, you know, have been written about what Sharia law <laughs> yeah. is, but if you could maybe give our readers or our listeners just a sort of very brief primer, what is Sharia law? Yeah, so as you've mentioned, it's, it's a huge topic. It's a vast topic, so vast that Sharia even has something to say about international commercial arbitration. Now, it, with Islamic... Um, law, it's always interesting to go to the linguistic meaning, right? So Sharia literally means the way or the road, right? So in the Quran, in chapter 45, verse 18, they actually say, right? So they're saying here, then we put you, O Muhammad, in, on an ordained way, way. That's what they're referring to when they say Sharia, way, right? right? So basically in this verse, they're saying, uh, the Quran is saying that we have set you on a clear religious path, so follow it on an ordained way or path. 
So the way, the road, the path is kind of the linguistic literal meaning of Sharia. But what it eventually obviously refers to now is Islamic law. And you've got some primary sources here that Islamic law relies on. So you've obviously got the Quran, uh, which is the religious holy text for Muslims. And then you've got the Hadith, which is the traditions of the Prophet and it's documented, the normative behavior of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Apart from these primary sources, you also have secondary sources as well, which people, uh, people don't know about these secondary sources as much. Um, and these secondary sources are very, very interesting, especially for law students and those working in the legal field, because you've got these tools of interpretation within the secondary sources. So some examples are kias, which is analogical reasoning, right? Analogy. Yeah. You've got ijma which means consensus. You've got maslaha, which means public interest. So within these tools, as you can imagine, when you're interpreting Islamic law, you have these tools where, whereby you can conduct some independent reasoning, which is known as ijtihad. Now, when I say when you, I actually mean Islamic scholars. There's different interpretations and different understandings of who can interpret Islamic law. There's a lot of discussions about this, and there's a lot of discussions on whether the door of ijtihad or independent reasoning is open or closed. Um, And within this discussion, there's a lot of intellectual stimulation because um, if you go down the path that Islamic scholars can interpret Islamic law, then the question becomes who can become Islamic scholars and to what extent can they interpret Islamic law? Um, Anyway, that's a a huge discussion as you can imagine. Um, But within Islamic law, you also have various schools of thought. So people know about this most commonly in terms of um, Sunni schools of thought, the four madhahib, um, but you've also got Shia schools of thought, the Jafri school of thought, Um, In fact, you've got way more than four main Sunni schools of thought. Um, uh, But again, this is also something that makes Sharia law really interesting and which makes you realize that it's not just a uniform body of law. It's it's really vast. It's subject to interpretation. And there's lots of different interpretations, in fact. And it's subject to a lot of debate. Right, right. I think that's... um sort of a great primer, uh, just sort of highlighting the main sources and also the different ways and the numerous ways that people can interpret a valid Sharia ruling. Now, I guess more relevant for our discussion, maybe help our listeners get a sense of when would Sharia law come up in an international commercial arbitration context? Yeah, so it becomes really interesting when we then go within Sharia law and start looking at, okay, when does it come up in an international commercial arbitration context? So let's take a step backwards. Now, international commercial arbitration is a very contemporary body of law. As you know, you've got private international law and then you've got public international law. Within private international law, you have this body of law called international commercial arbitration which arguably was created by Western institutions, right? And it's about how to arbitrate or resolve disputes internationally and commercial disputes in particular. 
right? So a lot of people will say, well, what would Sharia even have to say about this? Now, Sharia does actually have a bit to say about this, and it really depends on the angle that you take. So in a dispute resolution context, Sharia can come up in the following situations. Number one, where you've got a combined law clause. So what does that mean? That means you've got a governing clause which pairs a national legal system with Sharia or subjects a national legal system to Sharia, right? So I'll give you an example. For example, there's the famous Beximco case. In that case, they had a governing law clause which said that our agreement is subject to the principles of Sharia and the laws of England, okay? So you've got here a national legal system, England, paired with Sharia, right? So, so in case any disputes arise, right, the agreement will be subject to both. So that becomes really interesting. And you've got another um, case, the Shanghai case, and a couple of other cases as well, where they've got similar types of agreements where you've got a Western legal system and you've got the Sharia, right? And in these cases, you'd think it'd be simple, but in the private law context, if it doesn't go into court, maybe it will work. Maybe I argue that it can't work because you actually need to know what Sharia is. Right. Um, I'll go into that a little bit further later. Um, but what's actually happened in these two cases is that when it's gone to the courts in England, they've said, well, we don't actually know what Sharia is. When you <laughs> say this is this clause is subject to Sharia, what is it? You know, because it's not codified. Right. And so that in my um, book, I argue that the fact that Sharia isn't codified becomes an issue in international commercial arbitration. So I argue that we should have a codified set of rules pertaining to international commercial arbitration, right? I'm not saying we should codify Sharia completely. Right. It's, too, it's too big. It's yeah. too vast <laughs> to codify. Yeah. But I'm saying that in terms of international commercial arbitration, and I argue that there is the I arbitration laws, I'll get into that later, yeah. which is a perfect example of how you can codify arbitration rules. Amazing. Thank you for that. So yeah, that's that's a good primer because some of our listeners don't know what you know what even international commercial arbitration might mean. So I guess hmm. it's kind of like when two private businesses, you know, maybe one from Malaysia, one from Tanzania, they're doing business and they put in their contract, hey, you know, if one of us sues another, we'll be governed by Sharia law in this state. And and I guess your book goes into you know all the different ways that you know, you know, how that justice will be dispensed with, you alluded to the I arbitration rule. So that's I dash arbitration rules. Can you just maybe briefly highlight? I know that's one example. Can you briefly highlight yeah. what are the I arbitration rules? Yeah, sure. So yeah, exactly. As you said that when you've got two international private businesses and they've got a dispute resolution clause in their contract, they can either put Sharia as a part of a national legal system or um, they can combine it with, a, in terms of a private set of rules. Now the private set of rules, an example of them is the I arbitration rules. What are the I arbitration rules? These rules are private rules that um, have been codified in Malaysia by what's now known as the Asian International Arbitration Center. 
And the I in front of the arbitration in Malaysia stands for Sharia compliant. Now, what you need to understand is that these are private rules. So they're not part of the Malaysian legal system. That's a, if we start right. talking about the Malaysian legal system, right. that's a separate discussion in its all, on its own. Right. So these are private rules sim similar to um, the international rules, unicentral arbitration rules, which I argue that the Islamic arbitration rules should be uh, in harmony or harmoniously existing with the UNCTRAL or the international arbitral rules. So the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law has arbitration rules, arbitration rules which provide a comprehensive set of procedural rules which parties can agree that their arbitral proceedings are subject to. So I say we should have an Islamic version of that. And I say the best example would be these Malaysian rules the I arbitration rules. And what I argue in my book is that these I arbitration rules can be further developed. I argue in my book that there is no comparison with these I arbitration rules at the moment. What do I mean by that? Well, there are no other private arbitration rules compliant with Sharia that are comprehensive enough um, that can effectively apply to arbitration proceedings. You have... Um, for example, the, the UAE has tried to come up with arbitration rules, but they are not comprehensive at all. Right. Okay. right. Um, and in I fact, I remember in your book, you said that there's actually not, they're more akin for uh, adjudicating domestic disputes in the UAE. That's exactly right. Right. Exactly right. Very interesting. Okay, so yeah. that that I think you know that that also gives um, our readers uh, a little sense of you know uh, what how Sharia intersects with international commercial arbitration. So if you're listening and you're interested, you can go and Google the I uh, arbitration rules. Um, but let's get into the meat of your book. Um, so I finished reading it. I thought I thought it was very interesting. You spend a great deal of time talking about riba and gharar. So riba, that translates into interest, which basically refers to the interest payments that we pay. Listeners are pretty uh, familiar with that. And then there's gharar, which translates into uncertainty or speculation. And these are where, uh, you know, uh, or too many of the essential conditions of the contract are uncertain. So an insurance contract, uh, conditional sales, derivatives, futures, you give a bunch of examples. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the I arbitration or the, the international commercial arbitration part, why are these prohibited uh, interest and uncertainty under Sharia law? Yeah, so again, and now the listeners are going to start seeing a bit of a connection um, with the introductory remarks that I was making that Sharia is subject to a lot of different interpretation. <laughs> um, and that's what makes it so interesting for law students and right. for academics and for researchers. So even when it comes to riba and gharar, there's so many different interpretations. It makes your head spin. <laughs> and <laughs> and oh, it actually makes your head spin and also really intellectually stimulates you and makes Sharia so interesting. And this is again, going back to your initial question, why I'm so interested in researching this, air, this area. So riba, um, again, going back to its root letters, linguistically means to grow or to increase, okay? So the prohibition arises from verses in the Quran and the Hadith where they say that when wealth unjustly and unfairly increases, it becomes exploitative and unjust. 
right? And that's contradictory to Islamic principles of fairness. Now, this isn't something that um, the listeners might be completely sort of unaware of because usury, as it was known in Judaism and Christianity, and still some people who are uh, sort of more traditionalist followers of Christianity would would kind of follow this even these days. Um, so that's known as usury, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, and, and, and so some people, some Islamic scholars argue that what's actually prohibited even in the Sharia is usury, right? And, not, and usury is different to interest as it exists in contemporary times, okay? Now, this discussion also exists in Christianity as well. Now, there's a project that I'm part of in Australia, which your listeners will probably be interested in, so I'm going to quickly mention it. It's called the No Interest Loan Scheme. Now, this is a beautiful example of how Christians and Muslims are working together. So in Australia, we've got, and you might have this in Canada as well, we've got a Christian organization which provides um, people in need up to $1,000 Australian dollars. not sure how much that converts to Canadian dollars. We can quickly Google that up later. But... um, and they can borrow $1,000 without interest, right? Okay. And then they can, re- and then now Muslims have jumped onto that project as well. Right. So you've got Sharia working. So this is actually Sharia, right? right. So when people think of Sharia, you were saying that there's some negative connotation. Well, this is, this is Sharia. Riba uh, is not allowed in Sharia, interest is not allowed in Sharia, but here you have Christians and Muslims working together, offering $1,000 to consumers without interest. So small loans without interest, and it's called the no interest loan scheme, okay? So here you've, so basically going back to your question, we've got this prohibition against riba, but there's a different discussion in terms of, uh, there's different interpretations in terms of what is riba. Some say it's usury as it existed in olden times, not contemporary interest. Others say, no, it's even interest in contemporary times. Um, And then that, again, is a really, really um, detailed discussion, which actually reflects into and the legal systems of Egypt, Kuwait, Syria, Iraq, um, GCC countries, um, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Qatar. And in my book, I break it down in terms of how these different countries approach riba and their interpretations, because they're often based right. on their, uh, they're often based on the views of various scholars, such as Senhuri, etc. It's it's interesting. When I, when I sorry for interrupting. When when I read your book, it was because I mean you're right. Uh, you know, interest is you know it's like you said. Some people say that the prohibition on interest was to deal with the very exorbitant interest rates of the past, where people would loan you, for example, a hundred bucks, and they would expect three hundred dollars back. You know. Um, exactly. And it's interesting, you know, in your book, you talk about how some places like in the UAE, uh, you know, interest is prohibited between natural persons, uh, you know, consumers, but when it comes to between corporations and whatnot, they'll allow it uh, because, you know, um, but so um, maybe if we get into um, uh, maybe maybe the next part of the question, which is 
how do Muslim states deal with contracts which include interest or speculation? So let's say um, it's a foreign arbitral award and it's being adjudicated in Saudi Arabia or the UAE or some of the other states, you, you can take your pick. How do Muslim states uh, deal with those types of contracts in an international commercial arbitration context? Yeah, so again, that becomes really interesting. So uh, just going back to your question with, um, as you were mentioning with Gharar, we're talking about uncertainty, right? right. And um, and so both Riba and Gharar are both uh, sort of um, prohibited in Islam because Gharar, again, refers to excessive uncertainty or risk, right? right. Um, and so... Uh, now, the, the interesting thing is that these countries deal, even with foreign arbitral awards, they deal with Gharar and, uh, and Riba in a similar kind of way as they deal with it in their countries according to statute. So basically what I'm trying to say here is they take a very pragmatic approach. Um, and, uh, and this is, some people argue that this is due to economic pressures and the global economy. Um, because so even more conservative, arguably countries such as Saudi Arabia tend to take a liberal or more flexible approach. Um, and so that that means that a liberal approach means that, for example, Gharar is only prohibited when it leads to market manipulation. And therefore, they might argue that insurance, future sales, future derivatives may be necessary. And they use Islamic pr principles such as darura, which means necessity, or maslaha, public interest. It's in the public interest. It's necessary. This is the economic times we live in. And that's reflected into the arbitration context as well. Um, so at a, for, at a state level, it's a bit complex and a little bit um, sort of, you could say, contradictory because Saudi Arabia is a perfect example that they've got Sharia law implemented there. Um, their legislation says that, you know, nothing in this country can contradict Sharia law. But there are banks there that operate and interest is being charged. They're participating in the global economy. Right. And so... Now, one thing that you need to understand, um, and that's something that I clarify in my book, is that because this is private international law, international commercial arbitration disputes are not um, uh, often publicly available for us to read. So the, we don't have enough cases to rely on to actually give examples until someone actually tries to enforce a foreign arbitral award in a state, and then, then it goes to court, and then it, and it goes to court in a Western institution or a democratic institution, a democratic nation state where law is public. You see, law is not public in Saudi Arabia, so not every uh, case will be publicly available. Right. So it makes and it harder, for, it makes it harder we, for us to study it. Yeah. Exactly. And to actually know how they approach interest, how do they approach Gharar. There are a few um, arbitral decisions that I was able to find that I refer to in my case, in my book. And um, again, this, you know, it, it gets a little bit complex, but my, my overall, um, my research basically shows that there are some contradictory approaches in terms of Riba and Gharar in that generally these countries take a liberal approach um, and as you said, they may 
um, prohibited between people, but when it comes to companies, when it comes to banks, even when it comes to foreign arbitral awards, interest is sometimes awarded. Um, and it's not very clear, but that said, um, and I think I'm kind of jumping a bit ahead here. Yeah, there are in, in Malaysia, they have actually come up with alternatives to awarding interest on arbitral awards. So they've come up with, for example, um, Islamic compliant uh, penalties for late payment known as Gharama. G-H-A-R-A-M-A-H. Okay. And they've also uh, come up with the concept of compensation or tawheed. And this is the, this is the Bank Negara Malaysia who's um, actually said that um, penalties for late payment and compensation is actually allowed under Sharia. On the other so hand- This is sorry? where, sorry, this is where I guess um, an arbitral uh, tribunal let's say they side with the claimant <clears throat> and then they issue interest on arbitral awards, which happens all the time in a, yeah. a commercial arbitration context, but in a place like the I arbitration rules or in a place like Malaysia, instead of calling it interest, it's interesting. They'll say, Oh, um, on top of the award, instead of interest, yeah. we're going to compensate you for having to vindicate your rights, I guess. Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, so basically, so this is again uh, something that people argue. So similar to when, um, so as you know, one thing that I forgot to mention is that even though interest is not allowed, riba is not allowed under Islamic law, profit is allowed, okay? okay? So then you've got the entire Islamic finance industry, which is based on profit loss sharing. So some people are, some people are very skeptical of the Islamic finance industry and they say, oh, it's just, it's riba, but they refer to it as profit, right? Okay. Okay. Um, so there's this whole discussion about is Islamic finance even Sharia compliant or is it just, are they just using different terms? They're not using interest. Similarly, with, um, with interest that is awarded on arbitral awards, some people say, oh, so is Malaysia taking the approach where they're just not using the word interest, instead they're using um terms such as penalties for late payment, compensation, etc. Right. So this is one sort of view. The other view is, yeah, look, but they still are justifying it with Islamic principles. And um, and you know, when 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 they're calculating the rate of profit being awarded, they're not referring to conventional interest rates. They're referring to the Islamic money market, which was set up by the Bank Negara Malaysia. People argue that, for example, an Islamic compliant arbitration would never, for example, um, uh, it would not be Sharia compliant if the subject matter was about uh, gambling or the gambling industry or the pornography in industry. Similarly with Islamic finance, you know, you could never um, have an Islamic bank which invests in those industries which are prohibited and um, again, prohibited in Islam. So right. there's again, different views about what is um, right. uh, compliant. And <laughs> in fact, Islamic, uh, the traditionalist Islamic scholar Taki Usmani uh, who's very famous, he actually is again, this is the exact reason why he's against um, the con concept of compensation. And he says, 
So here the compensation is actually the same as interest. So yes. again, as so you there, can there's see- a, There's a very rich debate, you know, it goes back to what you were exactly. saying at the beginning of the numerous different interpretations that could abound and, and be considered valid um, within, within Islam. Um, that's interesting. So, you know, I hope our listeners just got a very basic sense, you know, at a very high level, interest and speculation uh, are prohibited in Islam. But what what those mean, what, you know, how do you define interest? How do you define speculation? That's where things become more gray. And we see different states, Saudi, UAE, we see different arbitral institutions like the I arbitration rules um, taking on a, a different lens. Um, so, uh, Excuse me. I just want to move on to um, sort of another issue uh, that you bring up in your book. You you talk about a lot uh, about selecting expert witnesses, and here we're going to zero in and focus a bit more on the I arbitration rules that you had alluded to earlier. Um, so you say that in the I arbitration rules right now, when it comes to selecting expert witnesses, expert witnesses for our listeners um, during an arbitral proceeding, when two sides are fighting over something and when the judge or the adjudicator themselves is unaware or needs some help, they'll refer to an expert witness. Um, but you say that right now there is silence in the I arbitration rules on how the parties should be consulted. Um, and can you just explain to us why is this such a big issue? You refer to the New York Convention and, and, and some of the obligations that states have there and the UNCTRAL rules that you referred to earlier, but explain to uh, our listeners, you know, what's the problem with the I arbitration rules keeping silent on how to select expert witnesses? Yeah, so basically, okay, so this is a, uh, just a warning, this is a very, very technical area and I'm not gonna go into the technicalities of it, sure. but that said, Exactly what you said. So with I arbitration rules, I have argued that they are the most comprehensive um, amongst what currently exists in terms of um, Islamic arbitration rules. But that said, they still need more work, right? right? And what I'm trying to advocate in my book is that the I arbitration rules, as you correctly mentioned, should follow the UNCTRAL rules, okay. right? And the reason why they should follow the UNCTRAL rules is because the UNCTRAL rules are more comprehensive. And the UNCTRAL rules are more, UNCTRAL rules are more comprehensive and more thorough when it comes to procedures for party-appointed experts. And I really want these I arbitration rules to be compliant with the international models. The reason is that if these, uh, if the arbitration rules are compliant with the international models, then the arbitral awards that are awarded will be more enforceable in various countries, especially in Western countries as well. And, and that's one reason. The other reason is that as we keep mentioning, and I guess that that's become the general theme of this podcast, <laughs> that there are way too many interpretations of the Sharia. Right? Exactly. So if exactly. you call on an expert witness to rule on a Sharia matter, right? Yeah. Now that there's going to be different experts with different views and different interpretations. So now the UNCTRAL model basically argues that it's really important. International standards of equality and procedural fairness are very important. So the expert witness should not be biased. The expert witness should re reflect um, what the parties want. Now, one thing that I forgot to mention, which is extremely important in, in international commercial arbitration, 
is party autonomy. So because the parties have the autonomy to choose what governing law they want, how they want to conduct their arbitration, that's actually one reason why the Sharia can apply in private international commercial arbitration in private law, because parties have the autonomy. If the parties want Sharia, they can have it. If they don't, they don't have to have it. So because it's not being imposed, because they're choosing it, it becomes less controversial, Right. right? But that said, because party autonomy and there is really important, these experts should also reflect what the parties want. And so there are all these rules um, internationally about how to ensure impartiality, independence, guidelines um, regarding the content of the export report. Um, And there's also guidelines about how parties can examine and challenge the expert report if they choose to do so. So these are the reforms which I have recommended because they will increase the probability of the arbitral award being enforced internationally. And it will also conform to international standards of equality and procedural fairness, but also to Sharia standards of equality and procedural fairness, because we have to realize that, so there's this term called Makasid al-Sharia, right? So that basically means the aims and objectives of Sharia. Now the aims and the objectives of Sharia include justice, include fairness. Right. So yeah. these reforms will also comply with these, uh, with the Makassid al-Sharia and with international standards of equality and procedural fairness. So here you have um, a reform proposal, which is really harmonious with both bodies of law. Amazing. And um, for those listeners who are interested and excited, I encourage you to pick up uh, Dr. Bhatti's book where she gives examples of how an expert witness with one interpretation of Sharia versus an expert witness from another interpretation or a school of thought under Sharia law can come to vastly different conclusion on a very important contractual point. And that'll make the difference between who wins the case and who loses. So, um, you know, you talked about it being very technical, but I think for the two parties who are suing each other, uh, they want, you know, clarity. So, um, yeah, very definitely. It becomes really, really technical. Um, yeah. Because because the thing is, what I do in my book is I refer to the um, inter- Western international commercial arbitration scholars who are arguing about this point, about what do you do when two parties want different um, expert witnesses? How do you resolve this? There's an entire procedure that they come up with. Um, and so I, I basically refer to those scholarly views and say, well, this is something that could easily apply for um, Islamic arbitration as well, because there's nothing that's um, contrary to Sharia principles here. In fact, it's actually complying with procedural fairness and fairness and justice is um, one of the objectives of Sharia in itself. Amazing. Thank you for that explanation. Um, You also talk about how certain madhabs, which you have translated as schools of thought, uh, so for those people who don't know, it just refers to a school of thought, we'll use the English word, school of thought, Um, you talk about how certain schools of thought of Sharia law prohibit women or non-Muslims from acting as arbitrators. 
Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there about Sharia law. You know, there are some people who say that under a Sharia law, no matter what interpretation, a woman or a non-Muslim could never arbitrate a Sharia a dispute. So you want to maybe clarify for us, is, is that the case? Is Sharia necessarily wedded? Does it always prohibit women or non-Muslims from presiding as arbitrators? No, because again, going back to our original point, again, the general theme of this podcast, there are so many different interpretations of Sharia, right? It's not just a uniform codified body of law. So the fact that it's not a uniform codified body of law actually is a good thing because you've got different interpretations and you've got all this sort of debate and different scholars and different schools of thoughts, etc., um, and then in the international commercial arbitration, uh, I argue that no, but in that context, it should be codified, right? So, so but the fact that it isn't codified means there's different um, interpretations. So when it comes to women or non-Muslims acting as arbitrators, this is a very important point. And this is something I'm going to explore further. And um, I'm currently researching further for a new article. Okay. Because the reason why it's interesting is now this is where you've got an intersection of Sharia, international commercial arbitration, which is a private international body of law, and then public international human rights law comes here as well. Because right. according to international human rights law, obviously, you cannot discriminate against, you know, different religions and against women, etc. So, so you can imagine what interesting intersections um, come between these three areas. So basically to answer your question, so not only are there different schools of thought in relation to whether non-Muslims can be arbitrators, there's also different uh, views in relation to women. So if we go to non-Muslims, for example, um, some argue that when it comes to Islamic matters, a non-Muslim would not be able to understand um, and therefore fairly arbitrate on the matter, right? right. Um, and so this is sort of the view if we follow the traditionalist or the textual as opposed to contextual um, interpretation by the Maliki, Shafi and Hanbali schools of thought, right? Um, on the other hand, we've got uh, arguably the Hanafi school of law, which authorizes a non-Muslim arbitrator or judge to have jurisdiction over non-Muslim parties in an Islamic territory, right? So right. you have some Hanafi scholars, not all, but some who argue that non-Muslims can adjudicate in financial, civil or commercial matters, right? Okay. And this is based on a Quranic verse, which requires um, witnesses to be Muslim referred, to, but that's only referred to in family law matters. So Hanafis argue, well, in the financial, civil, or commercial matters, then it's fine for non-Muslims to adjudicate there right. if they have a specialization in the area, right? Right. And again, with reference to gender requirements, it becomes even more interesting. So Arguably, again, the textual approach as opposed to the contextual approach, the traditionalist, and by textual approach, I mean where you're just, and a lot of law students would have studied, where you're just literally reading the text, right? The literalist right. approach. Yeah. So the Hanbali, Shafi, and Maliki schools of thought will argue, oh, the arbitrator should be male. But interestingly, you also you have classical te uh, textual, so literalist approaches which actually support the Hanafi opinion, which they know women can act as judges and arbitrators. Very okay? interesting. So, yeah. 
So this is this is your traditionalist literalist approach. Right. Okay. So you've got traditionalist literalist scholars such as Al Tabari, and some Shafi scholars such as Ibn Abi Al Dam who say that women can act as judges and arbitrators. So Al-Tabari, he initially belonged to a Shafi school, but then he found his own school of thought. Um, but he's still sometimes referred to some, by some Sunni scholars. Um, Hanafi school also argues that it's permissible for women to act as judges or arbitrators, okay? Now, interest, now so th th this is what, what I'm referring to as the literalist approach. When it comes to contextual interpretation, then you've got much more you know, quote unquote, liberal interpretations where people are saying, okay, look, there's certain verses of the Quran or Hadith where at the time they would, they, they said that women shouldn't act as judges because of so-and-so reasons, because they weren't as involved in the financial sort of context, etc. But now things have changed, etc. So that's the contextual approach. So one um, Australian professor that I recommend that um, listeners if they're interested in the contextual approach um, that they read his works, his name's Abdullah Said. He argues the contextual approach in a lot of his um, books. Yeah. So I recommend him. And also yeah. you've got Khalid Abu al-Fadl. You may have heard of him. He's a US scholar. Um, he argues contextual approach as well. So these are just some contemporary scholars um, yeah. and writers. Very, very interesting. I'm, I'm glad that that uh, clarified it because there's always that misconception um, and not just for Sharia law, but really for any sort of religious based law. But um, I'm happy that you were able to sort of clarify that and, and add the nuance that uh, that a conversation like that deserves. Um, we're pushing the 40 minute mark. So I'm going to ask our final, <laughs> no our, our final question. And um, you speak uh, in your book, you write about a future where we have a harmonized legal reality uh, and you take care to distinguish between harmonization and unification. Um, so what do you mean by a harmonized legal reality? What does harmonization look like for us? Yes, yeah, so my own personal opinion is that, um, so these days, I don't know what's happening in Canada, but in Australia these days, there's been this real discussion about whether we should tolerate each other or understand each other. And there's a big difference, right? So if you're tolerating someone, you're basically not understanding them. You're basically in your mind thinking they should become just like you, right? When you're understanding someone, you're respecting difference. And for me, that's really important. And that's probably the distinction between harmonization and unification. I don't think that Sharia law should completely disappear and just become the same as secular Western international law. I don't believe that personally. This is my personal view. I believe that difference is amazing. I believe that Sharia has a lot to offer. I think that um, there are nuances in Sharia that people don't understand. And my aim when I'm researching and writing about these topics is to further research and develop um, uh, Sharia law and um, a, a, because I believe various legal systems should and can coexist and that one unified legal system should not exist. Um, in fact, this I'm inspired by the Quranic verse which says we created you into different nations and tribes so that you may know each other. I believe that difference should be encouraged, right? And Right. Human beings should not simply be subject to one uniform way of thinking. So that's what I actually mean. And I, and I think that 
And, and interestingly, I don't believe this just at the international level. I also believe this within the Muslim community. So again, yeah. going back to the theme of this podcast or the theme of my book, there are different interpretations of Sharia and even the Muslim community doesn't understand this. They think that everyone should just think the one way, that our way is the right way. Um, and, you know, and there, there's, a, uh, there's a famous hadith by the prophet where he says, you know, difference is beautiful, that, you know, he really encourages difference and um, different way of thinking. And again, as in the Quran uh, encourages this as, way, as well. So there's never going to be just one uniform way of thinking, even within the Muslim community. And we really need to start understanding this. And, I, and I'm really passionate about this, both within the Muslim community and in, at the international level, that we're not uniform. We all have different ways of thinking, different interpretations, and we need to respect that. That is a great note to end on, uh, not just because of the very inclusive um, sort of dialogue that you've had at the end, but um, at McGill Law, we are we approach law from a trans-systemic, multi-juridical approach. Um, so we learn English common law, Quebec civil law, a little bit of indigenous legal traditions are also slowly now creeping in. Um, and it's something that we welcome. So I think that's a great note to end on. Um, for the listeners, again, the book is Sharia Law and International Commercial Arbitration, written by Dr. Maria Bhatti. The last name is B-H-A-T-T-I. She's a lecturer at the University of uh, at Western Sydney University in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us again today. And uh, we look forward to maybe uh, having you again sometime in the future. But for now, thank you so much. Thank you, Irfan. And thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Amazing. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.